It's wonderful to be with you. I hope you'll join me in thinking about this question, which you might say could be understood as that lament that many of us experience when we say, well, where are you, God? Where's your answer? Where's that thing that I was praying for? Where's that answer that I needed? I was looking for you. It might have been recently. It might have been a long time ago. Did, where, where, did, where, did, where should I have looked? Because I'm not sure I saw you. We've probably all, from time to time, have felt like that. I think that's an honest question. I think it's okay to admit sometimes. We ask questions like this. There's nothing wrong with that. Sometimes honest doubts can actually point us towards a faith that's more real, that's more based on truth, that's more based on things that are secure. And so I'm, I'm coming tonight with you as somebody who sometimes wonders about this question. I wonder if you would dare to admit that you sometimes wonder about this question too. Why does God seem hard to see sometimes? Why doesn't he seem to make himself clearer? Now, in addition to puzzling believers like me, this has also puzzled skeptics and atheists and those who have more significant objections to Christian belief and Christian faith. And they've said, well, doesn't God's reluctance to show up in test tube experiments and in different places, doesn't that suggest that actually, if God's really interested in making his creatures happy, that, well, maybe God's not there. Maybe God's reluctance to show up in those experiments or in mathematical proofs or where I wanted him to show up, maybe God's apparent silence is actually evidence of God's absence. I want to start with a couple of questions. I'm going to throw a couple of questions at you this evening and get you to talk to each other a little bit. And um, I'd like to invite you to be friendly and talk to the people around you about these two questions, just to get us in some of the picture of what I want us to be thinking about and what I feel the Lord has laid on my heart to bring to you this evening. So turn to the person sitting next to you and ask them this question. Do you ever find yourself avoiding things? And maybe what strategies do you see people using to avoid reality sometimes? What do you use? What do you see other people using? I'm going to give you a minute or so to talk about that question. So maybe that's a good question to pursue this evening as well. It's an interesting question. My wife always enjoys asking this question of me, um, particularly when there are things to be done around the house. Why are you avoiding those things? I've put a little list for you. Here you are. You, here's what you could do. I think some of this is relevant, and hopefully you'll see why in a few moments. Now, if I show you this picture and the word at the top of the screen, you might say, well, you know, that says God is now here. And other people might see it and say, well, God is nowhere. Why does some evidence that some people find compelling and interesting and really convincing and that moves people to deep commitment and deep acts of faith, why is that evidence sometimes unconvincing to other people? They react in totally different ways. Have you noticed this? Bertrand Russell was asked, he was a lifelong atheist, philosopher, probably the, sort of like the godfather of, of philosophical atheism of the last hundred years. Russell was asked, what would you do, Bertrand, if you found yourself after your death faced with the Almighty, proving that you were wrong about your skepticism and your atheism through your life? What would you find? What would you say if you were confronted with God? And Russell said, I would say, God, why didn't you make the evidence of your existence clearer? 
Why didn't you make yourself more obvious? Why didn't you show yourself more clearly? Not enough evidence, not enough evidence. Was Russell right? Was Russell correct in that claim? Maybe if, as I've said, many believers think that, you know, God wants his creatures to be happy, and if, if, if knowing about God is linked into creatures being happy to us being happy, then surely God would want the maximum possible number of people to know about him. Doesn't, doesn't that present a problem, a challenge? And I think it does. I think believers need to have a way of thinking this through, and they need to have a way of understanding this. Otherwise, sometimes if we bury all of our questions, sometimes they can eat away at the ground underneath our faith, and we might continue in relationship with God, but then we hit something, some event in life happens, or some situation comes, and actually we find that our whole field has just got all these holes underneath it, and it starts to sink away underneath us. What answer do you give to somebody like Bertrand Russell? What do you say to yourself? What answer do you work with when you ask yourself the question sometimes, God, where are you? Why don't you show yourself sometimes? What do you work with? Now, one way that people use to deal with this is to say, well, faith is not really a matter of facts and evidence. It's not really like that at all. Faith is believing what you don't have evidence and what you don't have facts for. It's about sort of leaping into a belief system. And so this sort of talk of evidence, this talk of being convinced and, you know, this sort of stuff, that's not really the right, right way to approach it. Now, that's a very, very popular way to deal with it. It's a very popular way. People say, well, you know, it's just a matter of faith. But I actually think that it's very difficult to square this with what the New Testament and what the Bible says faith is. It's very difficult to square it. Because when the prophets in the Old Testament would remind the people of God to put their trust in God, they would always tell the story of what God had done in history. And they would point back to how God had shown himself, the events that he'd shown himself doing in reality. And in the New Testament, Jesus would say, look at the things that I do, look at the claims that I make, and do they match my power, my authority? And he would grow back people's limbs, he would stop storms, he would know people's innermost secrets, he would cure incurable diseases, he would fulfill prophecies that were outside of his control, like the way he was born and the nature of his death. And then he would predict what he would do when he was killed and how that would happen. So is this a convincing way to deal with it? Maybe not. And especially when you read passages like what Paul wrote to one of the early churches in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. If Christ has not been raised, all preaching, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. And actually, when you look at the word faith, in a Bible, if you read an English Bible in the New Testament, the word faith, where it's used positively to affirm this is a good thing, you should put your faith in Jesus, you should put your faith in God, it's translated from an original Greek word, which is the word pisteo or pistis. And that means to be persuaded that the object of your faith is real and true. So this kind of very popular way of dealing with this where we say, some people are not convinced, some people are. It's just a matter of faith for some, and faith is this kind of thing that you can't have evidence for. It's very difficult to square that against what the Bible says faith really is. So is there another way to understand what's happening? I think that a reflection and thinking about what we're like as human beings and how we make decisions and how we see things or don't see things is sometimes really, really useful. It reminds me of a story. 
The story is that a guard, it's his job to stop people stealing things from a factory. And a guy comes to the entrance to the factory at the change of the shift pattern, and he comes with a a wheelbarrow full of sawdust and wood shavings from the workshops. And the guard thinks, oh, this is a bit strange. I maybe need to examine what's happening here. And so he searches through the sawdust and the wood shavings and searches the man and can't really find anything, so he lets the man go on his way. Well, the next day, the man comes with his wheelbarrow, the sawdust and wood shavings and the overalls, and the guard searches him, can't find anything untoward. The next day, the same thing happens the day after that, and this goes on for some weeks. Eventually, the guard notices the guy's got this kind of smug grin. He's driving a slightly nicer car, and he's got a new watch. Well, how did that happen? And the guard is starting to be puzzled. The months go by, and the guy still comes with his wheelbarrow, sawdust, and the wood shavings from the workshops, and the guard begins intensive searching to try to find out what the guy is up to. Eventually, the guard can't get to sleep. He's staying awake late, puzzling about what this guy is doing. He gets late for work because he's sleeping in, because he's staying awake late. And his boss says to him, I'm sorry, I'm going to have to let you go if you're late again. His wife then says to him, well, if you lose your job, I've had enough of you anyway, I'm off if you lose your job. And so the guard is really in a bit of trouble. He gets the guy the next day, comes with his wheelbarrow full of sawdust and wood shavings. And he says, look, I I don't know what you're doing, I can't figure it out. But... I'm in real trouble. I I need to get my life back together. I need to figure out what you're doing. Then I can go to sleep. Then I'll keep my job and my wife won't leave me. Help me. I'll let you keep doing whatever you're doing, but just tell me what you're doing so I can get a good night's sleep tonight. And the guy says, okay, I'll tell you. I'm stealing wheelbarrows. (laughs) Every day he'd been bringing a new wheelbarrow, a bit of mud on it, and the guard hadn't seen it. He couldn't. It was in front of him in some ways, but he just didn't seem to spot it. I think this story illustrates something really profound and quite interesting, and that is that when we think we see things, sometimes we don't. Sometimes where we are, our condition, our situation, our commitments, our desires, the way we view the world can shape the way we look at the world that we bring with us a certain perspective, and that can make it hard to see left from right, up from down. It can make it very difficult to perceive sometimes. So we should at least be open to the possibility that we may be mysterious in the way we see things, or we may not always be as coherent and enlightened as we sometimes like to imagine that we are. We should at least... Allow the possibility that things may be more complicated and that we may bring a certain perspective with us. Now, I want to talk about the word obvious for a second. Um, And I want to make a a case for understanding the word obvious in a certain way. Now, you might say, okay, obviousness can be understood. It's either there or it's not there. Well, actually, the dictionary offers us a couple of different definitions. One definition is that somebody, something is, is, is clear and easily understandable. Another understanding of the word obvious is that it's completely unavoidable. Now, that wall over there um, is unavoidable in some senses. If I, in some fit of eccentric English madness decided to run as fast as I could in that direction, that wall would assert its superiority physically over me and I would break my nose and probably some bones and it would stop me because that wall is forcefully obvious. 
Imagine a slightly different scenario. Imagine I said to you, well, I'm feeling particularly generous, and um, I really just want to give you a gift. And the gift is, let's go tomorrow to the airport, and I will buy you a ticket anywhere in the world with a friend for a week's holiday, and you can just enjoy it. I'll bring my credit card, and I'll just buy you the flight and give you some money for the hotel. And you can just have a great time on me, just as a gift of grace, as a, as a, as a kind gift. You say, all right, that's fantastic. You can't quite believe it. So you pack your bags and get yourself to the airport. And you turn up, and we walk up to the desk. And I say, okay, where do you want to go? And you say, this location, you've always been dreaming of going there. And I say, okay, brilliant, brilliant. Put your bag on the scale. Here's my credit card. And the person behind the desk says, okay, um, passport, please. Now, we would say it's clear, obvious in some senses, that you would need your passport for international travel. And if you didn't think to bring it, or um, ignored the need to bring it, perhaps, then that might be a failure to grasp the obvious, a failure to grasp what is easily understood and what's needed in that situation. I'm going to gently um, try to make the case that I think God generally is not forcefully obvious, but that he is easily understood or clear, that God offers himself in a way that we have to enter into discovering him and understanding him. And that this helps us to understand the different reactions that we see to evidence, to data, to information, to why some people don't spot the wheelbarrow and why some others do. I'm also going to say that I think God sometimes hides himself in a certain way for certain reasons. And I, that might sound like a bit of a strange thing to say, but I think God sometimes may choose to hide himself. Why might that be the case? Well, I started to do some research. I started to look in Scripture at examples of where God seems to hide himself. And actually, it's quite interesting. There are lots and lots of examples of God seemingly cloaking himself or not fully revealing himself or, or somehow obscuring things, or somehow not showing himself completely to people. So in Exodus, you've got Moses and God, and they know each other, and Moses and God are talking, and the Lord says to Moses, I know you, I'm pleased with you, and I know you by name, and Moses says, now show me your glory, and the Lord says, I'm going to pass all my goodness in front of you, I'm going to proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence, but he goes on to say, the Lord says, there is a place near me where you may stand on a rock. And then my glory will pass by. I will put you in a cleft in the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. And then I will remove my hand, and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. Very interesting. Why can't God's face be seen? Then there are some other verses in the Old Testament, in the Psalms, which also seem to touch on this same theme of God hiding sometimes. Psalm 10, why, O Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Psalm 22, you might hear echoes of something Jesus says on the cross here. Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry out to you by day, but you do not answer by night, and I am not silent. Psalm 30, O Lord, when you favored me, you made my mountain stand firm, but when you hid your face, I was dismayed. 
Psalm 88, I cry to you for help, O Lord. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. Why, O Lord, do you reject me and hide your face from me? It's not just in the Old Testament. We see some examples of God hiding in the New Testament too, of Jesus hiding. Jesus slips away and hides himself from time to time. John 5, the man replied, the man who said to me, who made me well, who made me walk, said to me, pick up your mat and walk. And so they asked him, who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? And the man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. In John 8, Jesus says, I tell you the truth. Before Abraham was born, I am. In other words, an assertion of Jesus' eternal existence, of Jesus being much, much greater than just that earthly life of Jesus. And at this, they picked up stones to stone him, showing they clearly understood the claim. But Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. John 12. Put your trust in the light while you have it, so that you may become sons of light. When he'd finished speaking, Jesus left and hid himself from them. And we read in Luke's Gospel, In Luke chapter 5, the news about Jesus was spreading all the more. Crowds of people were coming to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Now, one of um, the things that I do is I'm involved in philosophy, in academic philosophy. And philosophers like often to write very confusing books that nobody can understand. But sometimes, once in a blue moon, philosophers ask, a good question, and I think I've got a good question that I want to ask you this evening. My hope and my prayer in asking you this question this evening is that this question will stick with you for a long time. I hope that this question wrecks you in a good way. I hope it's a really helpful question for you to think about. I've asked this question a couple of times with a few different groups of people, And it's been a question that I've really seen when people engage with it, actually it has the potential to really open a window into understanding things like this question we're attempting to wrestle with today. Why isn't God more obvious? Why isn't God clearer? This question I'm about to show you isn't the same question. It's a different... I think it has the potential to really open up our understanding of things. So would you be up for engaging and thinking about how you respond to this question personally? Here it is. Here's the question. It might seem simple at first, but it's not. What kind or type of a relationship might God, if God exists, seek with you? What kind or type or mode of a relationship might God seek with you? Which kind of invites the question, what type of relationship am I seeking with God? What kind of relationship do I generally operate in or enjoy with God? How do you primarily relate to or connect with God? What kinds of ways are there of connecting and of relating to one another? Well, back over to you and a quick discussion in pairs. What different types of ways of relating are there? Just have a quick think. in, in ones and twos, just in twos and threes, just have a quick think about the roles you have in life and how there are different modes of relationship that sometimes are connected to those roles. So just give you a minute or two to talk about that question. Off you go. Now, if we, if we say, okay, we can relate to things, um, objects in certain ways, like cash machines and um, cars and um, inanimate objects, 
When we think of what Martin um, Buber called the I-thou relationship, the interpersonal dimension, what different ways of relating are there? Well, maybe we might think of family types of relationships, brothers relating to sisters and sisters relating to brothers, sometimes different. Um, parents and children, employees, employers, um, servants, um, kings, subjects. We might think of learners, students, and their professors, their lecturers. We might think of friendships, the um, connections between soul friends who have promised to stay friends forever and ever, um, or friends who have just met each other in a new place, or friends who have met each other on Facebook and don't really remember how they met and why that person's in my friend list. Um, or friends or acquaintances that we connect to through Twitter and don't really understand um, how we're friends either because we believe totally in completely different things. And then there are, of course, romantic friendships, romantic connections and relationships. And we live as human beings in a diversity of different types of relationships. And we're constantly having to navigate the appropriateness of our behavior according to the relationship and the different factors in there. And it's complicated and we sometimes get it wrong and sometimes those who are closest to us get the worst of us, unfortunately. How does God primarily want to relate to us? I found that people generally think that God relates to us in one or two of three or four different ways. The first way that many people primarily relate to God is through their behavior, through leading a good life, through using their gifts and their talents well. Don't ask those sort of those big questions. Don't worry about sort of, you know, these types of philosophical questions like I'm asking this evening. But just get on with practical realities of life. Just live the best life you can. Use your gifts as well as you can. And let people who want to be spiritual be spiritual. But actually, we need to just do the best we can with what we have. It's a pragmatic approach. It's a moral approach. And it generally starts with God as good but a bit distant. And so um, maybe the way we relate to God and we connect to God in this kind of a system is that we do the right thing and we sort of, you know, try to live that good life. Now, we might add to this the idea that we have to believe in some sort of God. We have to believe that some sort of being who's good, who wants us to use our gifts well, exists in some sort of way. We affirm a, a set of statements of belief, or we sign up to a doctrinal basis of some kind or another, or we affirm a creed of some type. And we may say, well, you know, maybe if I can believe these doctrines and if I can live in a kind of the right kind of way, then that's what God wants me to do. And that's how I connect with God. That's how I know God. That's how God wants to connect with me. Think the right things about God and live the right way. But maybe we might also add to this feeling the right things, feeling positive about God, maybe waking up in the morning and saying, I'm so thankful that I'm alive. I'm so thankful that I have this life and this day. I'm so thankful for the gifts I have. And to feel positively towards God. If you imagine you have a friend and um, your relationship with that friend, at distance perhaps, is that um, you, you believe that they exist and you try to live a good life because you know that they're a moral person. They would want you to live a good life with what you have. And, and you feel positively about them as well as believing that they're there. 
Now, most of us would say, actually, is there not something more to a relationship than behaving and doing the right thing and feeling positive about that friend and believing that they are real and that they exist? Is there something more to a human relationship? And so maybe there's something more to the divine relationship. Maybe there's something more to the relationship that God yearns for with us. However, I think many of us tend to take these sorts of systems, believing the right things, doing the right things, feeling the right things, we compress it together, and that becomes our faith, that becomes our religion, that becomes what makes us a Christian or what makes us a religious believer. And we think that if we keep this stuff going, then actually that's what having faith is, that's what relating to God is. But if you think about it, maybe there's something more. Maybe God doesn't just want us to do, to live a good life and to feel positively about him and to believe in his existence. Maybe God actually wants to know you, the unique individual that he's created you to be. Maybe like a friend that values you or maybe the friend that you yearn for. A friend who really just wants to hang out with you and to know and to laugh with you at the things that you react to and the things that you enjoy. Maybe God actually thinks those other things are a celebration, a way of expressing and saying something about this relationship. You see, it's news to many that God primarily doesn't want us to be well-behaved. He primarily doesn't want us to just believe the right things and feel the right things. His primary interest is that he would be our Father and that we would know him as sons and daughters and we would know him in a relationship. How could God tell us about this? How could God tell us that this is what he wants, that this is what he's interested in? Okay, I need to tell you a slightly horrendous, embarrassing story now. So I was at school, um, boarding school, I was 14 years old, and at school, the school decided that they were going to go co-educational, and it was a single-sex school, and the girls were going to come into a school of sort of 500, 600 boys, they were going to add in 400 girls from another school, we were going to amalgamate. We thought this was going to happen in a year or two, but suddenly the girls' school, unfortunately, ran into financial difficulties, and we were told that in a week's time, 400 girls would be joining our school. Now, as you can imagine, it was pretty intense. The competition was rife. <laughs> it, I, I'd made friends with a lovely girl, Imogen, and we would go for walks over the playing fields together. We'd spend hours in the library talking about big questions and life and all the rest of it and what we wanted with our lives. And this went on for several weeks, and I began to think, well, maybe this is what it feels like to be in love with somebody. Maybe this is what it feels like to, to really like somebody and want them to be your girlfriend. And I, didn't know much about relationships. Most of what I knew about relationships and people starting to date was, was from movies and from rom-coms. And people always, always seem to do these big gestures in, in, in movies. And I thought, well, this is what I need to do. So I got my pad of handwriting, letter-writing paper, which I don't think even had had the first page torn off it, even though I'd been at school for several years. I, had, I was meant to write to my parents and tell them what a great time I was having. I got my pad and my paper and I got my um, pen and I wrote her a letter explaining how I'd come to feel about her, explaining what I thought of her, explaining my hopes for our friendship in the future. I had to sort of, I remember having to sort of push with quite a lot of force to fold the 14-page <laughs> letter 
and to stuff it into the envelope. And I remember sellotape being involved in sealing it shut. I didn't think this was at all strange for some reason. Anyway, I got the letter and I took the letter up um, to her. Uh, I, I got into sort of, you know, there was this downstairs area we could access. And, and, and um, I, got, I put the letter on her desk in her study and um, retreated out into the night to um, wait for her response to my communication. Well, I saw her a little while later that evening. The look on her face told me everything I needed to know. It was terror. <laughs> she was completely shocked by what I'd said and by what I'd expressed. She had no idea that I'd been feeling like that. Our friendship was pretty strange after that point, as you can imagine. It was awkward. It was a bit weird. Never really quite got to anything like the friendship that we had before. Now, maybe a bit of ego in me says, if I'd approached things a bit more cool, a bit more calm, then maybe things would have ended differently. I think God had a, another plan for me in the end. But I wonder if this tells us, because some of us have had these experiences too, where we've been strong in our communication and it's changed a relationship. Maybe somebody wrote to you and said, the Lord has told me that I will marry you. My wife reported she had a few letters like this when she was single and living in London. Sometimes those, the strength of those communications works out well. Sometimes we crash and burn. And the relationship is never quite the same until much, much later, perhaps. Here's the question I want to ask you now. How could God tell you of his love for you in a way that completely left you free? in a way that respected your independence to choose to discover him if you wanted to, but left you free and didn't freak you out. If it's true that God loves you and me more than we can possibly imagine, if God just revealed that in one moment to us, we might say, yeah, that would be wonderful, but imagine you've never experienced that before. You weren't really sure if you wanted to know that. That could be terrifying. And maybe it would also completely obliterate your own choice to choose to discover him, to choose to know him. I think God wants to know you and wants to love you in a way that's deeper than doing the right things, believing the right things, and feeling the right things. I think God wants a loving relationship with you. But I think God has set things up in such a way that he's created a space, enough space in the way that we relate to him in the world and in our lives that we can choose to discover him if we want to, and he will respect our choice. It's not forced, merely available. As Tozer said, God waits to be wanted. Pascal said this. He said, God wishes to move our hearts rather than just our minds perfect clarity about God. If, we, if God would appear in test tubes and experiments and maths proofs, it might help the mind, but wouldn't it harm the heart? God needs us to humble our hearts so that he can have relationship with us. And then hold that against Jesus. Maybe God has and is showing up and showing himself in the person of Jesus. If everything that Jesus said and did is real, if that happened right now in front of you, that would change everything about any reasonable person's questions about God. When we're faced with Jesus, C.S. Lewis says, 
It is terrifying. It may seem unlikely, but he says, I have to accept the view that he was and is God and that God has landed on this enemy-occupied world in human form. I think that knowing God starts with a personal relationship, a personal invitation, a personal response. Pascal says, there's enough light for those who desire to see, but enough darkness for those who don't. How could somebody, if they wanted to open the door and invite that way of relating to God that he's designed, where he respects our freedom, how could we open the door to that? Well, that's the choice that I made myself when I was at university. The Bible uses the word repentance. It uses this word which describes how we come to know him. Is God giving his son enough to catch your attention? Repentance means saying, I'm turning away from the stuff in me that's stopping me seeing reality, that's stopping me admitting that you're there, the stuff that might be a blockage to a relationship with a holy God. How can you open the door to that relationship? You simply have to say, I need it. You simply have to say, I see you, God. I think you're pure. I know I need your help. I know I'm not pure. As we take communion this evening, I want to invite you to form your response in terms of that. Accepting communion from a heart that says, I think you're a holy God and I think you're there and I want to come and I want to open the door. I want to respond to that invitation to personally know you, to have that relationship with you. That could be one way of expressing and one way of just going through that decision to invite him to relate to you.